Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this time. Lord, we are here to hear from you, God. Speak truth to our lives, Lord. We lift your name up in this church and as a family together because you alone are worthy of praise and you are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Would you just give your neighbor a solid fist bump before you take your seat? I'm so excited about everything that God is doing here in our church. It's already been an amazing weekend. We started out with our Refresh Women's Conference, which was off the charts, amazing. And listen up, ladies, if you missed out on that Women's Conference for whatever reason, insert excuse here, you missed it. It was amazing, okay? Like, I was jealous I couldn't be there. Not in a weird way, but like as a guy. I mean, it was so incredible. And it's because we love our ladies. And it's so important for you to have that time together with other women, just celebrating and being encouraged together. So do not miss it in the future. Put it on your schedule right now and never miss a Generation Church event again. And last week we filled out these commitment cards and I'm just really encouraged and proud of our church because you guys have shown that God is doing something incredible in your life as you live generously and give sacrificially. The first step in giving is to become a tither and let that be a regular part of your life. And then once you get tithing kind of as part of the pattern of your life, you can go beyond that and become a kingdom builder. That's giving above and beyond the tithe so that we can take the gospel outside of these walls. So you can still turn in these commitments at any time and we're going to kind of tally them up and I'll give you an update with where we're at next week. Tonight we're continuing this series, Jesus Drops the Mic. And I love this series because we're looking at some of the really difficult sayings of Jesus, some of the things he said which were incredibly challenging, maybe even confusing where you read scripture and you're not really 100% sure what he was talking about. So that's what I want to do is try to focus on those things and with God's help, with the Holy Spirit, hopefully we can understand them a little bit better and apply them to our lives and not be confused because God wants to lead us into truth. That's what he wants to do. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 7. And we're picking up in the middle of the longest sermon ever and the greatest sermon ever. Now, the greatest sermon ever will not be tonight. It was the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Hear Jesus, he's saying, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And as if that wasn't enough, then he says this, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. You have to read that and immediately your response is probably like mine where you go, did Jesus just call those guys pigs? Like, who's he talking about? This does not line up with the softer, sweeter Jesus that I saw in paintings in churches in the 80s, you know, soft glowing Jesus with the little baby and the lamb and the lion and he looks so nice. This is some smack talk and mic dropping Jesus right here telling people, what's up, calling people dogs and pigs. Have you ever given somebody a gift that they did not appreciate the way that maybe you hoped they would? 
Or maybe you've gotten a gift and it wasn't really something that you wanted and you had to kind of do that smile thing where you're like, oh, thank you. Like maybe you got your wife a subscription to ESPN the magazine last year for Christmas and you were surprised she didn't like it. Got your junior higher some deodorant, you know, like, hey, maybe you want to use this. We sometimes we give people gifts and it's not what they wanted. It wasn't what they expected. And we all kind of struggle with that. I, I read that guys, you know, we tend to give practical gifts. Girls tend to give more sentimental gifts. You know, I don't know if that's true in your family. And maybe sometimes you worry about giving someone a gift that you think that they'll like. You want to give them something they'll like, but you're not sure and you feel anxious about it. I read an article in Time Magazine. Maybe it'll make you feel better. It said that if you feel anxious about giving someone a gift, it's actually a good thing. It's a sign that you love them and you care about them and you want them to like your gift, you know? You want, them to, you want them to want what you're giving them. So you shouldn't feel bad. You shouldn't feel bad if you're anxious a little bit. That's not really a bad thing. I want to talk to you tonight about pearls and pigs. That's the title of this message. Pearls and pigs. When you read this passage where Jesus says, it's a waste of time to give pearls to pigs. He says, you can feed a dog a filet mignon, but why would you? when it's perfectly happy with a squirrel carcass. Don't give pearls to pigs. What's he talking about? When you look at his word choice, I think it was intentional, and we'll talk about it. In order to understand this, this phrase, which seems very intense, you have to look at the context of the passage we just read. And, that, and anytime you try to understand what scripture says, context is key. Say it with me. Context is key. You got to get a t-shirt on it there. Context is key. That's your rule for reading scripture. Scripture always interprets scripture. Anytime you're not sure what a piece of scripture means, you should search the rest of the scriptures and you will find clarity. Scripture interprets scripture. You can't take one piece of, of scripture. You can't take one verse and, and, and try to figure out what it means by itself because that's how people come up with all kinds of crazy ideas and doctrines. Context. So we're going to look at the context of the whole passage we read. First, we see that Jesus is addressing this large crowd. And this is what I think is happening here, okay? I've never seen this before till this week, and I, I think it makes sense. I could be wrong, but, but I think it really makes sense. Follow with me here. I think first, Jesus is addressing the crowd. He's preaching what's called the Sermon on the Mount, and in the crowd, there are all kinds of people there. There are there's just sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and, and gangsters and homeless people, people that are rough around the edges, who are looking for Jesus and the hope that he offers. There are people who, who are uh, his disciples and followers. There are people that don't really know why they're there. They, they heard about his miracles. And I think there are the Pharisees there. They kind of followed Jesus around everywhere and they were hoping he would say something they could catch him in to get him in trouble. So I think that what we see here in this passage is really important. I think what happens first is that Jesus is speaking to the whole crowd, just generally speaking. And he says, do not judge you guys, or you too, will be judged. With the same measure you use, it'll be measured to you. The way that you judge people is the way you will be judged. Then I think for this next part, I think what he does is I think he turns and he looks at the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are back in the corner, they're in a little group and they're like, we're gonna catch him saying something. They got their phone out, you know, like the paparazzi so they can put a video on YouTube and try to embarrass him. Maybe not, but that's what, they, that's what they would have done if they had technology back then. And they're like, come on, he's going to say something. And so then Jesus looks at them and he says, you hypocrites. I think, that's what he, I think that's who he's talking to. You're going around looking for a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye while all the time you've got a plank in your own eye. What was he talking about? 
the Pharisees, they were hyper committed to trying to follow every letter of the law. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think maybe sometimes their heart was in the right place. Sometimes maybe it wasn't. But the Old Testament law, there were 613 commands of the Old Testament law that they had kind of created, some of them even. And they, they kind of wanted to follow every single one. They were zealous about it. And what they would do is they would go around and try to catch people breaking one of the commands. I mean, how annoying would that be, right? You got somebody like creeping around your house like, Ugh, saw that, you know. And he's saying, what are you doing, you hypocrites? You're looking for the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, and you've got a two-by-four, a plank sticking out of your face. What did he mean? He meant that you're so obsessed about trying to follow every little minutia of the law, and you're missing the one who has come as the fulfillment of the law, me. I am the fulfillment of the law, Jesus was trying to say. And you can't see anything that really matters until you see me first. Once you see me, the fulfillment of the law, your eyes will be open. You'll be able to see clearly. And then maybe it's worth your time to point out a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye. So I think he's speaking to the, the Pharisees and he calls them out. Then I think he turns and he looks at his disciples his crew, his inner circle, I think. The 12 disciples, he was training them to build the church. And so he's gonna give them a little, a little comment. And he says, guys, don't waste your time casting pearls to pigs. Don't feed what is sacred to dogs. They'll just trample it underfoot and come and maybe even attack you. I think the Pharisees would have been sitting there like, man, he's talking trash about the Pharisees right now. His, his disciple, I mean, how bad are you when you talk trash about someone right in front of them? You know what I'm saying? That's what Jesus was do doing. He's like, don't, don't cast pearls to those pigs. His disciples are there. I think they're taking notes in the front row because that's where people sit who really care about what's going on, not in the back. Nah, no. Nah. I'm not just messing with you back there. I love you in the back. It's a good seat back there. And I think, I think that's what we really see here. Why did he call those guys dogs and pigs? He wasn't just calling them a name. It wasn't like a, a junior high name calling thing. Like, oh, you're a pig. You're so ugly. And you're like, oh, I'm not ugly. I'm beautiful. And your mom's like, no, you're beautiful. You know, it wasn't like that. He wasn't just calling them names. He was making a very important spiritual point. The pig in the Old Testament law, it was the quintessential representation of everything that was ceremonially unclean. So anything that was unclean was unfit for use in worship to God. And when we've sinned and we have that status as a sinner, we are unclean before God. We cannot be used in worship to God. So when Jesus says, you know, these guys, anyone that's unclean is like a, like a pig. It's like ceremonially unclean. The, the dogs that he's referencing, it's not the way that we view dogs today. We have dogs as pets today. We put them in sweaters and we take Christmas photos with them, you know, because we have unhealthy obsession with animals. I'm just saying, I'm not judging you. But back then they didn't look at animals that way. They didn't look at dogs especially that way. Dogs were wild. They were rabid. They would roam the streets in packs. They would attack people sometimes. They did not like dogs in the Middle East, and they still don't today. They don't keep them as pets the way that we do. So he's comparing anyone who is ceremonially unclean to a pig. He's talking about people that are not receptive to what you want to give them as dogs. And it's not just name calling. He's making an important spiritual point that sin makes us unclean before God. And when we have lived a life 
apart from God, and we have the status as a sinner, like everyone does. We're all, we're all sinners. We're born with a sinful nature. We are unclean and separate from God. And what scripture says is, as we are separate from God, unclean as a sinner, we are deserving of God's judgment and his wrath. This is really serious, and it's, it's kind of something I bring up not to freak you out, not to make you feel worried or, or nervous or guilty, but because you have to understand how wretched we are as sinners. You have to. If you don't understand our state of wretchedness as sinners, you cannot understand how much God loves you. If you think about, well, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, come on. I mean, I know I'm making mistakes, but, you know, I pay my taxes and I'm pretty nice, right? I mean, if you think like, well, if you think I'm a pretty good person, then you automatically have to think that God's love is not really that great. Because if you're a pretty good person, well, then, yeah, maybe Jesus should have died for you because you're pretty great, right? But when you understand how truly sinful we were and how deserving we were of punishment, then you understand how great God's love was because he would die for me when all I deserved was execution. This is the gospel. First John chapter one, verse nine says, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So God, who's a just God, he must punish sin. But when you believe in Jesus, when you put your faith in him, the punishment for sin that you deserve doesn't just go away. It is counted in the punishment that Jesus took on the cross. That is how Jesus can earn your forgiveness because he took your punishment. Therefore, you can receive forgiveness and life through him. That's why we say that the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. That's where that phrase comes from. It's, it's his blood on the cross that paid the price and made us clean before God. This is a great treasure that we have, the greatest treasure, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we were dead in sin, but through Jesus, we become clean. And this is the treasure that Jesus calls us to share with the world. It's the great commission. Go and preach the gospel, the good news. This is the treasure that we wanna share. In Colossians 2, 3, it says, in him, Jesus Christ, is what they're talking about, lies hidden all of the treasure and wisdom and knowledge, all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. And if you look for wisdom and knowledge outside of the person of Jesus, you'll come up empty every time. But there are some people who don't want to accept this treasure. You know, I don't know why anyone wouldn't want treasure, right? You'd walk up to them, here's a thousand dollars, no thanks. But we know why. Scripture tells us why. Ephesians chapter four, verse eight says, their minds are full of darkness they wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their mind and hardened their heart against him. How many of you can remember a time in your life when your heart was hardened towards God? I can, right? And even though you knew you were doing something maybe that was wrong or, or you were running from God, your heart was hard. And so you're like, I don't want to hear it. I don't care. Don't tell me that I'm sinning. You even maybe were mad at God. Like, why should I listen to you? You had a hard heart and you were spiritually blind the way that this passage describes. That's why when we are spiritually blind apart from God, we can't even see the truth. People live in denial. They live in denial of their state as a sinner, they're unrepentant. They don't recognize their need for Jesus. They refuse to acknowledge him as king. And so what Jesus is trying to teach us is that it's a waste of time bringing treasure to someone who refuses to accept it. 
Like if you were to go to the club up in Scottsdale next Friday night and people are up in there, they're ready to party and they're getting their drink on and the club music is going, it's getting hot in here. And you show up and you're like, the Bible says that you should not be doing this. They're going to be like, who are you? Right? I didn't ask you for your opinion. Just like Jesus described, pigs that will trample the pearls underfoot, maybe even turn and attack you. You've probably been attacked at one point for being a Christian and saying something true that the Bible says. Someone looks at you and they go, who are you to say there's only one way? You're a bigot, you're a hater, you're a lot. People will turn, they'll attack you. And Jesus described this. So that's why he says, don't waste your time casting pearls to pigs. Don't waste your time giving pearls to someone who only wants pig slop. It's a waste of your energy. It's a waste of your time. They won't appreciate it and they won't accept it. And this is really practical teaching for any of his disciples. Because we sometimes wonder, you know, you have someone in your life and you care about them and they're doing something, you're, you're kind of worried about them and you think, should I go tell them? Should I go tell them that they're doing something that's wrong? The truth is, Jesus is saying like, not unless they're ready to hear it. Because individual sins is not what matters to God. He cares about our state as sinners. That's what matters. So there's confusion about judgment. And you've heard somebody say, it's not my place to judge. You know, we've all said that maybe. Who am I to judge? It's not my place to judge. But we're always judging. Think about it. We are. We're always making decisions about what we don't like and what we do like. I liked that restaurant. The food was good. That's a judgment. And you get on Yelp and you leave a review. You go to the movies and you say, I did not like that movie. I went and saw The Great Wall on Friday and it was a great disappointment. You made a judgment about it. You got on Facebook and you left a five-star review for this church because it's the greatest church you've ever been to according to your judgment. So you make judgments, but then also we make judgments in bad ways. <laughs> Sometimes we judge people, you know, you judge politicians and you say, well, he says he's a Christian, but a Christian would never do that. There's no way he's a Christian. That's judging someone. You judge an athlete. That guy's lazy. He doesn't have any heart. You, never, you don't know that guy, right? People judge each other in churches. And well, man, I can't believe they believe that in their church. They must not really love God. Judging is a problem. So here's how to understand this issue. We can judge words and actions, but we cannot judge the heart. We can judge words and actions, but we cannot judge the heart. Like if you made me a delicious meatloaf, and it was dry, that'd be sad. And I can judge that meatloaf, it is dry. It's an objective fact, but I can't judge your heart. I can't say, you had made that meatloaf dry on purpose because you hate me and you're a terrible person. You do not love God because nobody would overcook meat. You do not have the Holy Spirit, you're not good. That would be judging in the way that Jesus warned against, right? We can judge words and actions. I'll prove it to you. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, reject every kind of evil. So how can you reject evil unless you've made a judgment that something is good or it is bad? In accordance with God's word, you have to make a judgment. We naturally have a sense of right and wrong and we're naturally given to making judgments because we're made in the image of God. And God is the judge. He is the good judge and he is the judge of everything. It says in Genesis 18, Abraham was talking to God and he was praying about God's punishment for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
and he was asking God to spare these cities. He said this, surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked, why you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God is able to judge the heart. He can separate who is wicked from righteous, something that we cannot do. When this passage says right there at the end, that's the Hebrew word mishpat. That's the word for judgment used throughout the whole Old Testament. It's the word used for right, for righteousness, for justice, for executing a sentence, for deciding a court case. God is a judge and he is a good judge. He has never made a bad judgment. None of his cases have ever been overturned in the court of appeals. There is no court of appeals because God only judges rightly. Why? Because he can measure a standard that we as humans cannot measure. He can measure the heart. He can see past what's on the outside. He can see past the words that we speak and the smiles we put on our face and he can judge us in our heart. That's why he's a good judge and he can judge rightly. So Jesus is warning this crowd you have a sense of justice, you, you have a natural inherent sense of, of right and wrong, but you need to be really careful. Don't go around judging other people because you're guilty yourself. That's what he's saying. So why, why shouldn't we judge other people? It's because we need mercy, our own selves, right? Think about the group of the Jews who were, who were Pharisees. They were trying to live under the Old Testament law and follow every single little rule. They were zealous to try and fulfill the law. And they'd go around, they'd point out each other's faults and, and they'd say, you know, you messed up and, and you shouldn't do that. And, and you're not a good Jew. You don't really love God or else you wouldn't do that. And they were so harsh with each other. They were always looking to punish each other and catch each other. And, and honestly, we read about that and we're like, man, those guys were terrible. They were the worst. But Christians still do this today. Christians are some of the most judgmental people you'll ever find. Not in this church, of course, because we don't play that game. So if you're judgmental, you can take yourself on up out of here unless you feel like repenting today. But... We, but Christians, they, they'll be so judgmental. Man, don't even get on the internet chat room with a Christian. I mean, they'll get on there. They'll be tearing each other apart. Like, oh, you don't read the King James Version? That's the only holy version, right? Like, how dare you read the NIV? I mean, that is for sinners. And, and they'll be judging each other. Like, oh, those kids should not be running in church right now. Stop running in church, kids. Like, where does it say in the Bible that you can't run in church with these little kids? Like, I don't want them running around right now while I'm trying to preach. But before and after church, let them run all over here for all I care. They can run on the seats. They can throw a baseball around. They can kick holes in walls. We'll patch it up. That's fine. These can be so judgmental and Jesus is warning us, don't do that. Don't be judgmental over things that do not matter. There are primary issues of Christianity, non-negotiables, what we call close-handed issues. We will not negotiate about certain things. Like Jesus, he is the son of God, right? There is only one way to be saved. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, according to his grace. Those things are, we don't debate about that. But then there are secondary issues. Things that are, they're open for discussion. We're not gonna waste our time judging each other about secondary issues. Like, oh, I think the rapture is gonna happen after the tribulation and blah, blah, blah. You're not a real Christian. You don't love God. No, we're not playing that game. Judgment, that's not what God wants for us. Judging each other is part of the body of Christ. This will really tear people apart. It'll tear you apart in your marriage. You don't wanna be judging each other in your marriage. That destroys marriage. 
When someone makes a mistake, we all make mistakes, and then you, you ascribe negative motives to their heart. You know, your, your husband leaves a, a dish in his car for three days, and it's all moldy. You can say that that's gross. That's making a judgment about an action, you know? But you can't judge his heart. You can't say, you don't love me, or you would not leave your dishes in your car. That would be wrong. I, I kind of learned about this this last week. My wife put me on blast at the women's conference yesterday. It's all right. It's all right. It was Valentine's Day on Tuesday, as you know. Tuesday, right? Okay. And so I wanted to do something nice for my wife. I went to the Cheesecake Factory where dreams come true. And I got us both a piece of s'mores cheesecake. Now, normally we would share something like that, right? Because you can enjoy things like that in moderation. We would share, which means that she got a few bites and I ate the rest. But for Valentine's Day, I wanted to be romantic. So I got us each our own piece so that we could eat our own piece of cheesecake in peace, you know, according to our own desire and save some for the next day. And it would be so good. And that's what we did. We ate it that night. We saved it. We ate some the next night. But the third day came. And in Christianity, the third day is a good day. But in my house on Cheesecake Week, it's a bad day this time. (laughs) And I don't know what happened, but for whatever reason, I opened the fridge I saw my wife's leftover cheesecake and I decided to take it and eat it. (laughs) I reverted back to my pre-Christ sinful heart and took her cheesecake. Now what is really messed up about this is that my leftovers were still there in the fridge. I don't even know what happened. I don't know what took over me. Like who does that, right? Like who's, that's terrible. So my wife comes home and she's going to get her cheesecake and it's gone. I'm like, oh yeah, I ate it. And she was so mad, you guys. Like she's normally so chill. She's the chill one in our relationship. And she's yelling at, like, you ate my cheesecake? You ate my cheesecake? I was like, oh no, I felt so bad. Like, what did I do? I felt terrible. I'm thinking this is like the maddest I've seen her in the last year probably. But then at the same time, I felt pretty good because I'm thinking, this is the maddest I've seen her in the last year. Like, if this is the thing that she has to get the most mad about, I'm doing pretty good as a husband, I think. Come on. And the cheesecake was delicious. So I think I'm still repenting about it. Um, I don't know why I would do that, but I was telling her, you know, you need to give me mercy the way that you want mercy. And what I did was wrong, but you cannot judge my heart. I love you, babe. We'll make it right next year, okay? We can't be judging people's hearts. And here's the general principle that guides us in this. You reap what you sow. When you, when you, re, when you sow mercy, you will reap mercy. When you sow judgment, you'll reap judgment. When you sow generosity, you reap generosity. It's a principle that applies to this as well. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you're going around pointing out other people's faults all the time, talking critical about people like, oh, can you believe he said that? Oh, can you believe she wore that? Oh, she is not good at that. What do you think is gonna happen when you have a bad day? People are gonna be ready to drop the hammer on you. But if you're merciful, Jesus says you'll receive mercy. 
Now here's the challenge, okay? We're not supposed to judge people's hearts. We are supposed to reject evil, which requires judgment. And we are supposed to make disciples. In other words, life requires confrontation. There's no getting around it. But there's a right way and a wrong way to confront. So I'm gonna give you four keys for confrontation as we come to the close of this message here. Four keys for confrontation. I'm going to give you questions to ask, which will guide you. Now, this will help you in any kind of relationship where confrontation might happen in your marriage, with people at work, family members, fill in the blank, anywhere. First is consider. Consider and ask this question. Consider, is this person spiritually capable of seeing the truth? You must consider that person's spiritual state. As Jesus describes... Some people are not ready for the treasure that you have to offer them. So you can come, you can try to show them the truth, but some people cannot see the truth. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. So when you're looking at someone, when you're talking to someone or dealing with someone who is not a Christian, they are living in a state of spiritual blindness. Their heart is hardened. You can try to plant seeds of truth in their life, but it will not take. You can try to show them the truth, but they cannot see it. They cannot see it. So you've got to consider that. Consider their state. So there's no point going around saying, well, I can't believe he did that. Well, he's not a Christian, bro. Why would you be surprised that he did that? He's sinning, which is what sinners do. Pigs play in the mud. Don't get so caught up on the sins that you miss the sinner. It's like missing the forest for the trees. We don't want to focus on people's sick, uh, their symptoms. We want to focus on the sickness that causes the symptoms. That's, that means basically we need, to, we need to reach people. The first thing that needs to happen is they need to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Otherwise, there's no point. There's no point trying to correct them or confront them. So we consider their state. And also we should consider our own state and our own weakness and our own mistakes. And remember that Jesus said, those who give mercy will receive mercy. Here's the next step. Converse. We need to converse. That means have a conversation and ask this question. Is my perception aligned with reality? I think I'm seeing something here. I'm worried about it. It upsets me but maybe I need to have a conversation with that person and make sure that what I think I see is what is actually happening. How many times have people been offended over a misunderstanding? It's happened to all of us. People have come at you and they've said, you're a terrible person. You don't even care about me. You're pastor. You don't even like shake my hand in the hallway and you're not a good pastor and you don't love God and you should not be preaching the Bible. You're like, man, I didn't even see you. I'm sorry. There's a misunderstanding. And you've had people do this and they've come at you and they've been mad and you didn't even know you offended them. You don't want to assume that you know the motives behind what someone does. You know what happens when you assume, right? Google it. (laughs) 
After the second Balkan war I was reading, Greece and Bulgaria were at odds and the tensions were very high. There was a standoff after 1913. The armies were kind of ready to fight and they were just kind of sitting there primed. Anything could have set it off. And what happened in 1925 was this soldier on the Greek side, his dog got loose. And he chased after the dog and he accidentally crossed over into Bulgarian territory and they shot him. They thought he was invading. And because of him being shot, the whole army invaded. And before they could call a ceasefire, 50 people had been killed in this situation because of a misunderstanding. The dude was chasing his dog. That's why when we get offended, when we see something that we think is wrong, often we should stop. We should have a conversation with that person first. Hey, man, you said this, and it really offended me. I felt disrespected. Did you mean to say that? I saw you do something, and it didn't really look right. What were you doing? What's, it can save you from so much unnecessary heartache. Converse, have a conversation. Sometimes you might talk to someone, and you might even find out that you have a blind spot that you're not aware of. You might be offended about something and, and go to talk to someone and they might tell you something you didn't even realize you were doing, but it could help you converse and even converse with God and pray for that person. Pray for the person that you're concerned about. It's amazing how when you pray for someone, it softens your heart and it's almost impossible to become bitter towards them. Here's the third thing, to correct. When it comes to confrontation, there is a time when we need to correct someone. And you ask this question, is there a clear conflict with scripture is there a clear keyword clear conflict with scripture sometimes people will do things and they'll say you know you shouldn't do that you shouldn't sing that style of music in church it's like show me where in the bible it says you shouldn't do that right you shouldn't where are things like well show me where in the bible it says because if it doesn't say it clearly in scripture i have to be really careful about confronting someone about it but if there is a clear, clear uh, guidance in Scripture and we see something that's in conflict with what the Bible says is right, it might be okay then to go to a Christian brother or sister and to correct them, to bring correction with humility and with love for their own benefit, not to throw it in their face, but to help them grow. We all need correction in order to grow. But you might want to ask yourself this question. Do they appreciate my input or would I be wasting my time? You want, to ask, you want to think about this. Do I have a relationship with that person already? If you have a relationship with someone, maybe you go to their life group or you hang out, you play softball together, you, you do stuff together. That person is going to really value your input a lot more than if they don't even know you, right? So think about that. And I want to ask this question for each of us to consider. How well do you accept correction? This is a very important thing to consider. How well do you accept correction? To me, as a, just my own opinion, I think that this is one of the top two signs of spiritual maturity. One is generosity, because you cannot fake that. God makes us generous. And the second thing is teachability. So often I come across people, they talk a great game about their spiritual life with God, but they are unteachable, they are uncorrectable. And they'll call you pastor. Trust me, they'll be like, oh, pastor, great sermon today. As long as you tell them what they want to hear. But if you come and bring correction, oh, then it's like, get away from me. I don't got time for that. Who are you to tell me? You be, this happens every week, every week. I'll talk to someone and I'll say, well, you know, man, I saw you, you know, punch somebody out in the parking lot because they took your space before church on Sunday. And uh, that's not cool, bro. You're like, who are you to tell me, right? This happens all the time. 
I'm going to leave my husband because I don't like him anymore, right? Like, well, that's not what God wants. And it's like, well, God wants me to be happy. That's not what the Bible says. I don't want to hear it. How well do you receive correction? Here's what it says in Proverbs 13, 20, uh, 31 through 32. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. When you disregard discipline, it says you despise yourself. Another translation says you only hurt yourself. So ask yourself this question, who can correct me? Who can? Who, who has permission in your life to correct you? If your friend came to you and said, honestly, hey man, I saw you do this and it wasn't, wasn't okay, would you listen to that person? If your spouse came to you, if a family member, if, if a leader in your life came to you, if your pastor came to you, would you listen to them? Or would you, would you say, well, no, no, it's not your place to correct me. Those, those verses in the Bible about submitting to spiritual authority, those are not for Americans. We are independent, land of the free, home of the brave, Jesus, America. <laughs> or would you receive correction? Who can correct you? The truth, I think, is that anyone should be able to correct you when they speak the truth. Proverbs 19.20 says, get all the advice and instruction you can. So you will be wise the rest of your life. That means, man, for me, it's like if someone comes to me, it doesn't matter if it's their first day in church. If they say, hey, Ryan, you know, you did something that wasn't right. If they're right, then they're right. You know, I should be able to receive correction from them just as well as they should receive correction from me. I tell people that work on our staff, I tell leaders that are growing, don't be worried when I correct you. Be worried when I stop correcting you. Because if I've stopped correcting you, that means it's pointless. That means it's hopeless because you've proven that you will not receive correction, that you're unteachable. And when you're unteachable, you cannot grow as a Christian at all. You cannot grow as a leader. You cannot grow in the workplace. It's true, right? If you're not teachable, it puts a barrier on where you can go. Correction or discipline is for our own benefit. God corrects us because he loves us. A good loving father corrects his children. A loving father says, don't, not, don't go play in, in the street because I love you. That's discipline, it's correction. An unloving, per, an unloving parent just says, go do whatever you want, right? God is a loving father, that's why he corrects us. So we have to bring correction at times. Discipline is for our benefit. Disciples, we, that's the same word. Discipline comes from the same word that disciple comes from. At times we need to be corrected. And here's the last thing I want to talk about. It's something that we're not supposed to do. We should never do. It's we should never condemn. We should never condemn. And you want to ask yourself this question. Whenever you're tempted to confront someone or you're going to confront someone, ask yourself this. Am I qualified to judge? And then check your ID real quick. Look in the mirror. And if you are still not God, you're still not qualified to judge. We don't ever want to condemn because condemnation comes with a final declaration of punishment. It judges the heart and we cannot do that. In fact, someone who goes around condemning, if they're a Christian especially, that's one of the greatest signs of spiritual immaturity. A Christian who should understand that we're only saved by God's grace, looking to condemn another Christian? Oh man, you're missing it. James 4, 2 says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, speaking to us, who are you to judge your neighbor? So we know God is the lawgiver. He is the judge. 
He alone can judge the heart. But I want to point something out here in this passage I think is very important. Look what it says. It says that God is the one who is not only able to save, but also to destroy. That means this is important. God can condemn and he does destroy the wicked. That should freak some people out, okay? That should freak us out. I, I, I should know that if I am separate from God and I have not repented of my sins and accepted forgiveness that Jesus offers, I am still in that moment, I am guilty before God. And scripture says that he does judge sin. Look what it says in Psalm 33, five. This is a great passage. It says, the Lord loves righteousness. It means he loves holiness. He loves righteousness and justice. That same word, mishpat, that word justice. Think about that. God loves holiness and he loves justice. That means he loves what is right and he loves punishing sin because it is make, it's just, it's what is deserved. He loves both. So that, sh- that, that should cause you to pause and be a little concerned. If God loves justice, that means he is going to judge sin and he is not going to hesitate. When your time is up and you stand before God, you do not want to find yourself still in a place where you are guilty of sin. I mean, we could still be walking around, talking on this earth. My heart could still be beating. I have breath in my lungs. But if I'm not right with God, I'm walking around with a death sentence hanging over my head. That is concerning. But look what that passage said. It said this. It said, but the earth is full of his unfailing love. And that phrase, unfailing love, it's the Hebrew word hased. Unfailing love, God's loving kindness is the Old Testament Hebrew word for what in the New Testament we call grace. So God, who is committed to righteousness, he loves justice. He's also filling the earth at all times with his grace. The opportunity to receive mercy, forgiveness, and his love is offered to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And we should think about the fact that If we haven't made ourselves right with God by accepting Jesus, by believing in him, as scripture says, then we really, we should really be concerned about that. We're in really bad shape. We are facing God's wrath. But it is possible to be saved. It's possible, it's possible to be forgiven. We should, like Psalms 51, 2 says, pray this prayer, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. So if you've recognized in your life tonight that this is you, that you're you're still before God, and and honestly, you would say, I've never received his forgiveness. I've never accepted Jesus. My status before him is still that of sinner. You can pray, like Psalm says, and say, pray God, wash me clean, purify me of my sin. And what we know is that when you believe in Jesus, that he is the son of God, as he said he was, that he died on the cross for our sin and took our punishment and that he rose again on the third day. As scripture says, as we sang about earlier, you know, you will be forgiven. That's what the Bible says. You will be saved. It's a promise. And your status before God changes. No longer does he see you as a sinner. He now sees the righteousness of Christ inside of you. This is what theologians call the great exchange. He takes our sin and our guilt and he places it upon Jesus and counts it in his work on the cross he takes the righteousness of Jesus and imputes it to us and counts us as righteous because of what Jesus did 
this is amazing. And we can accept this at any time, but yet so many people refuse to accept it. They live hard-hearted. They will not accept the truth, but God wants to give them this new life. He wants to give them the forgiveness and favor that he offers. And we have to choose. We have to choose whether to accept or reject this. I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet tonight. Just as we close here. Maybe you're here tonight and you know that you need to take that step and place your faith in Jesus. You need to be made right with him and accept what Jesus did for you and be forgiven. You can do that tonight. And I just wanna give you an opportunity to do that. You should do this if you know, I need to make a change. I wanna be right with God. You feel the Holy Spirit maybe right now pulling on your heart to take that, that step of faith. You can do that. What I'm gonna do is ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Just have a moment of privacy. And if you're ready to take that step of faith tonight, just pray this prayer with me. It's not a magic prayer, but it just expresses what's in your heart. Say, God, I know that I've sinned and I'm guilty, but I believe that Jesus died and took the punishment that I deserved on the cross. I believe that he rose again three days later so that I could have eternal life and victory over sin and death. And I'm committed to following you the rest of my life. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Help me to be merciful towards others. I love you, Jesus, and I'm giving you everything I have. In your name I pray, amen, amen. If you pray that prayer, I wanna celebrate with you tonight. I'm gonna ask you to shoot your hands up on the count of three so we can celebrate with you. One, we're here for you. Two, I know that God loves you. Three, just shoot your hands up if you pray that prayer tonight so we can sing with you. Anybody, show it up. Man, God is so good and his love is amazing and he deserves our praise, amen? Come on, let's sing his praise tonight. Lift your voices, declare this truth.